More of The Truth with Sherwin Hughes is next on 1017 The Truth, The Truth app, and 1017thetruth.com. Welcome to Hour 2 of The Truth. I'm sure you. So we talk about, well, we talk about a lot of stuff. Some of it makes no sense. Other things I think do make sense, especially to people who are familiar with this city, its current incarnation and its history. To talk about Milwaukee and to define it, it's to always talk about the impacts of segregation and the long-lasting and very, very durable effects of that segregation. So now it's not, okay, the black people live here and the Latino people live here and the rich people live here and the poor people live here. Yeah, we still have some of that. But now the next generation and the unintended or maybe intended consequences as what started as housing segregation by race has become much more elegant and it has informed the thinking of leaders and policymakers and business folks throughout the city. But to talk about Milwaukee and to be honest about the city is to talk about the segregation and who it hurts the most and who it was always supposed to hurt. And that's a black population that was migrating here from the South, not because they liked the weather, but because there was economic opportunity and jobs here and because the Jim Crow here was less subtle, more subtle rather. But now we are two generations removed from the last great migration. Now what are we seeing? We're seeing people migrate back down South. I remember only 17% of the nation's black population live in the Midwest. So we are still relatively rare here. The overwhelming majority of the African-Americans in this country live in the South at about 56 percent. Smaller shares live in the North, the Northeast. And I think about 10 percent of us live out West. If I was to leave Milwaukee and sometimes I think about it, I don't know if I'm going to be here forever. I'm not sure. I would move out West to the Southwest, not Arizona, because Arizona is a little bit too cliche. I would move to Nevada. In fact, Nevada, they have a there's a city just outside of Vegas where African-Americans do very, 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 very well. So I'm going to talk about something that's very familiar to those folks who have conversations about Milwaukee. Honest conversations about this town. And it was written an article that appears on TMJ4.com written by my friend Julia Fellow. And it says an analytics company has just released a list of best places for African-Americans to live in 2023. Out of all of the largest cities in the U.S., Milwaukee ranked fourth worst. This is out of 133 cities. And it's, of course, the worst for African-Americans. But for so long, and we've known this, you know, Tory talks about it's the worst place to raise a black child. We've known all that. We have all the information that we need. We've got all the data. we got all the statistics. We have all the anecdotal stories from people. 
You know, we have people who are living under the thumb of poverty. We have people that were incarcerated and still struggling to find economic opportunity. We hear all that. You can drive through the neighborhoods and you can just see there are visual reminders of the bad shape that some Milwaukee neighborhoods are in, including the northwest side where I happened to be yesterday going to the DMV on 73rd and Mill Road. And I think the way we have been looking at that problem and the way that we have been talking about it on Black Talk Radio, and depending upon the host, depending upon the day, depending upon the mood, we get very angry, don't we? But it's like running in place because our anger falls either on deaf ears or we're preaching to the same choir. Here is what I think I have been doing wrong, and I don't know if my fellow African-American talk show hosts will join me in this, but this is not just a black problem. This is a Milwaukee problem. This is a people problem. This is a human problem. Everybody who lives in this city, there's a lot of people that love Milwaukee. They love it so very much. Some people choose to come here. They say, no, of all the cities I can move to, I want to come to Milwaukee. And if you choose to come here, and you want to have ownership, you want to be a real stakeholder in this city, then you should want to roll up your sleeves and get to work to help a disparate African-American population. This is not just a black problem. That's like saying that a woman who's getting beat up, that's her problem. You fix it. If people are oppressed by institutional systems that we know exist here because you can't talk about Milwaukee without talking about the segregation. Ladies and gentlemen, the segregation of the city is not just a word. It was a whole economic system of urban apartheid right here. It wasn't just the black South Africans who wanted to end apartheid. Everybody did. In fact, it was an international effort to end it. So it has to be a citywide, I mean, Latino people and white people, and there's many Asian people here. All of us have got to play a role in ending some of these disparities and these terrible monikers that we get. Milwaukee's the worst place for black children, a worst place for black people. This is a Milwaukee problem that is disproportionately impacting black people, but it impacts all Milwaukeeans in some shape, form, or fashion. Let's talk to... Al from Sherman Park, you're on the new 101. 101.7, the truth. Go ahead. Are you sure? You sure I, you know where you were? I don't know. I thought I was at WNOV for a second. I almost, uh-uh. almost went and got my old job back. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I kind of noticed what you noticed, and I've been noticing for a long time that the <clears throat> north side has just gotten more desolate, more desolate. Um, of the areas that I uh, travel in the city. I, I spend a lot of my time now. It seems to be around the West Dallas, Wauwatosa, um, West Milwaukee areas because they have uh, most of the shopping things that I need, and it's relatively close to uh, Sherman Park when you get on the Brewers uh, Boulevard and go south or if you go 94 West. But um, we're going to have to make some changes, and some of the changes might have to be with some people that we claim to love, and those are some of our politicians. Um, I, while you were going over the uh, prison, uh, well, I should probably call it a youth prison, but the youth facility, I said, let me look to see who the state senator is for that location and what their objection might have been to placing that there. <clears throat> and you probably know who the state senator for that region is, right? Very much so. And were they one of the biggest advocates for the youth uh, facility being Probably. moved to Milwaukee? Um, one of many, but likely the most vocal. Yeah. 
most vocal. And so these things are always being sold to us by black leaders as being black, good for the black community. Um, now, city politicians did what they do best, right? When it came to be uh, located uh, where it is, they, who were still in office, put it in a district where they had no representation. That way, they didn't have to take a lot of flack from their own constituents, right? You can see, you can see how that political move, or that was the easiest place for those people to put it in a place where people weren't represented. Um, but we, again, we got to start looking at our leaders when they start saying things are good for us. Now, when they put that facility there, does that help the longtime older um, seniors that uh, own their homes? Does that help them with property value? Does that help them with business development in that area that then attracts more people to live out there and possibly want to buy their houses when um, you know they're ready to like move on to the uh, retirement home or or Florida. So we have to stop falling for emotional arguments from some of our politicians about what's good for black people and really start thinking for ourselves. It's okay to be a little bit selfish when you talk about your neighborhood, your community, and what gets put there. Fair enough. Even though, Al, the conversations about building this prison started when the ninth district residents did have representation the previous ninth district alder person didn't leave office until 2022 the conversations about locating that prison probably started in 2016 2015 in fact there was a whole different alder person in that area when those conversations started but when they finalized it what happened that person they they put it there when that person wasn't there and they moved quickly to do it because they were probably going to get representation pretty soon, and the people were going to stand up and say no. So they knew there was a uh, an empty hole there, and they could railroad, basically, the residents of that district. But you need to remember that next time you go vote for some of these people. The only person I saw had cur- courage on, on, in that regard was Malaylee Cox. And she probably uh, would be the person I would say best represents your black interest in, in this city. Uh, some other people's like uh, Lena Taylor may not. Um, that's why I could never vote for her for uh, mayor because she always seems so concerned about the incarcerated, and I never really hear her really get on her soapbox about the victims. And that always just drove me crazy with her. But you get what you get by the people you elect and the things that they sell you. Fair enough, Al. Appreciate your call. Okay, thank All you. All right, now. Bye. Bye bye. Ooh, he gonna make some people mad because I know how some of y'all just love Lena. Lena came up yesterday. Somebody brought her up saying that this city would be so different if she would have been elected mayor. Well, that's true. That would definitely be true. I know that a lot of the Barrett people, the holdouts or the holdovers that are now in the Johnson administration, would have all quit. Or been fired. I don't know if any Tom Barrett people would have stayed to work in a Lena Taylor mayoral administration. I think the people in the Tom Barrett administration relished at the idea of working for Cavalier Johnson. Uh, I also know that the current mayor 
has selected some really unconventional people to help fill out his administration, including offering some pretty high profile, very important positions to members of the Common Council, which politically could be a really, really savvy move. So if I was the mayor, here's what I do politically. Policy wise, it's a little bit different. I very well may have done the exact same thing that he did. I would have taken members of the Common Council, like long term incumbents, offered them jobs in my administration, essentially doubling their salary and boosting what their overall earnings are going to be in their retirement. And then hopefully those constituents that voted for those older persons that I would have selected for my administration would also become uh, much more sympathetic to me because I hired their representative. But then you use your bully pulpit as the chief executive of the city to have heavy influence on who the incoming alder persons would be. So you would remove a popular alder person, put them in your administration, which would force a special election and then have a lot of heavy influence on who the next alder person could be. So you can build your own legislative coalition. Hell, that's how Tom Barrett did it. Tom Barrett knew the Cavalier Johnson would be a very reliable piece of support for Tom Barrett's legislative agenda items. And Cavalier Johnson absolutely was. He voted with the mayor sometimes against the best interests of black people, the black community and his black colleagues on that council. And Cavalier Johnson got rewarded for it. He became mayor. But Tom Barrett wanted people that would be sympathetic to him to help him with his legislative agenda because Tom Barrett didn't doesn't really have a lot of legislative power. The council's got all the legislative power. But if he has people in that council or Cavalier Johnson has people on that council that agree with him, that have the same vision for the city as him, well, then it makes it easy. So if you remove three or maybe four people from the common council, you put them in your administration, then you have three, maybe four special elections in which the mayor can have an awful lot of influence. The mayor could campaign for the folks that he wants to get in. The mayor could raise money for the people that he wants to get in. But I don't know if that happened. It seems to me that the mayor has been relatively hands off of these council races. And I think that that's a no-no. Because you need to make sure that you have a political agenda that can turn into actual progress that you can then run for reelection on as mayor. So if you have sympathetic council members that share your agenda and they help you, they get things out of committee, they help you get the full council vote. And you can point to those things as mayor like, hey, look what we did. Hey, look what I did. Look at some of the policies that we pushed through. Then you run for reelection on that. That is how you can manufacture accomplishments by having influence on the political process. But I don't think the mayor did that. Best of my knowledge, Cavalier Johnson endorsed a guy named Gerald Ballard. He ran in the second district against Mark Chambers. Gerald Ballard got mollywopped. Dude, it's like he like the votes he got was just because his name was on the ballot. Mark Chambers got like 76 percent of the vote. And Gerald Ballard was endorsed by the mayor. Like, that's embarrassing. If you're the incumbent, you're the mayor, you're the chief executive, you're the one person that appeared on all the ballots in all 355 wards in this city, and you can't get a single council member elected. And that was Cavalier Johnson's old aldermanic district. So he knows the people. He knows the voters. He knows who to talk to. He knows how to wield influence. That's the one thing that an alder person knows. They know the people in their district that make the most noise and that can influence the most votes. I just That's why I'm, I'm just so confused at... Because I used to predict this kind of stuff. Like the calculus of Tom Barrett was very textbook. You could just follow right along with it. It was just like a road map. It's just easy to follow. There it is, right? This is what Tom Barrett is going to do. This is what he's going to say. There's going to be an issue. There's going to be some crime. Tom Barrett's going to be in front of the podium. He's going to give us the chief of police going to be right there next to him. 
But with this mayor, it's a little bit more difficult to follow because if he is an extension of the Barrett administration and for all intents and purposes, some of the people that work in his office are still Barrett holdouts. Like the trajectory and the path that he has taken to his political accomplishments is very un Tom Barrett like. Financial analytics company Smart Asset broke down their findings into three categories, median income for black family, percentage of African-Americans in the workforce, and those who have a bachelor's degree. Out of 133 cities, Milwaukee finished at the bottom at number 130. I'm going to take a pause for the cause, come back and pick it up where I left off. You're listening to The Truth with Sherwin Hughes. I'll be right back. It's The Truth with Sherwin Hughes on 1017 The Truth, The Truth app, and 1017thetruth.com. showed home ownership disparities to Angela Walters, the first black chairwoman for the Greater Milwaukee Association of Realtors, which revealed 28% of African-Americans living in Milwaukee are homeowners, which is 34% lower than the best ranked city in the country, Murfreesboro, Tennessee. She says, I'm saddened by it, but I'm not surprised. That's what Walters said. According to the National Association of Realtors, 4% of Milwaukee area home buyers last year were black, while 93% were white. Walters said that statistic included home buyers in Milwaukee, Ozaukee, Walworth, and Waukesha counties. It was post-pandemic where lots of buyers were out there, and to say only 4% were African-American, that's really disheartening. And that's enough four county area she believes the history of redlining and systemic racism caused her black clients to stay within milwaukee neighborhoods instead of buying homes in the suburbs also she says in her experience some of these neighborhoods are not welcoming even today for people of color we all benefit when there is diversity and so when someone is selling their home if they're If they were to limit the buyers who come into the property, they are really shooting themselves in the foot. Another statistic that went into ranking Milwaukee is our workforce. 59% of African-Americans living in Milwaukee are working, and that is 19% lower than the best-ranked city on the list. Remember, Milwaukee is 130 out of 133 cities. We are literally near the bottom. These numbers were showed to Milwaukee business owner Ed Hennings, who said, none of this surprises me. And that's the thing. Like, none of this shocks anybody. But when we talk about how there's fewer black homeowners and the black workforce participation is lower, and I'm going to get to the education piece in a minute. Our bachelor's degree holders are lower, double-digit percentages lower. And that's important, even though y'all don't like college. 
People that have at least a college degree contribute $400,000 more in taxes than people who don't. That's a big deal. So think, in the lifetime of a person, every human being, black, white, yellow, red, whatever, that has a college degree, they are contributing more tax dollars to the system than they are taking out. They, in and of themselves, are economic engines. And so when you have fewer African-Americans with bachelor's degrees, that hurts their life chances, hurts their job prospects, hurts the ability for them to be homeowners, the ability to be able to afford a mortgage and send their kids to good schools, the whole thing. But this should not just be looked at as a black problem. This is a Milwaukee problem. Really, it's a nationwide problem. But if we continue to lament over these statistics and, and every year somebody else comes out with something, everybody else comes out and Milwaukee's always the lowest. It's terrible for our public relations. This makes the city look dreadful. At what point will everyone in this city be bothered by this? Or do we just say, oh, well, it's just a black people problem. I sure hope the blacks figure it out. This is an all hands on deck approach. We should hear people being troubled by these statistics from South side council members from South side and East side members of the County board from everybody in the Wisconsin state legislature, Democrat, Republican assembly or Senate. This is a Wisconsin problem and it's dragging our region down. That's the thing. White people don't prioritize this like they should because they love the city. They want the city to operate at its fullest potential. It can't. It can't. We're always going to be dragged down by this albatross, this anvil that is hanging around our collective city neck, keeping us at the bottom of Lake Michigan when we should be floating on top. The disparities that exist in the black community is a Milwaukee problem, not just a black one. The entrepreneur says he refuses to be another statistic after serving 20 years in prison. I took the routes of learning skills, he says. He got his barber's license behind bars. I think me hitting rock bottom kind of showed me that there is something different to this. So I started to take an extraordinary path. It led him to owning a barber shop and now a trucking business where he employs those who have been incarcerated. If you just stay focused on your goals and just keep working, that blessing or lesson will reveal itself after you get through the storm. Very inspirational. The final statistic in the study shows 14 percent of African-American Milwaukee residents have a bachelor's degree. Julia and others reached out to the University of Wisconsin system and Marquette University to learn how they are making tuition more equitable. A University of Wisconsin Milwaukee spokesperson replied at UWM, we are committed to eliminating longstanding equity gaps and making sure the students of color Graduate at the same rate as white students. We recognize that affordability is a key factor in attending college for all students. We take a hands-on comprehensive approach to supporting students with addressing the overall cost of attendance. Some examples include providing students and families support in completing the FAFSA with the federal application for federal student aid, as well as connections to UWM's Panther Scholarship Portal. UW Systems Wisconsin Tuition Promise Program 
which starts in the fall of 2023. This new initiative was launched to ensure underserved Wisconsin students can attend any UW system university without paying tuition or fees. Working with generous donors to offer financial support like retention grants and emergency grants that can help bridge the gap for students. Broadly, we're also focused on efforts to improve college attainment across the region through collaborations like M-Cubed, which widens the pipeline of prepared college students, and the Moonshot for Equity, which takes a wide-ranging approach to remove obstacles and create solutions aimed at closing equity gaps in higher education. Now, that's a comprehensive approach. Shout out to the UW system. I'm a proud UWM Panther. Go Panthers. I know the support that I got when I went to UWM, and there was way less black students when I went to UWM in the 90s than they have now. It was embarrassing, actually. But the support that we had as black students, like we had our own academic advisors. Like we had our own floor of a building where we could go and just vent and we could complain. They would even pick our classes for like, oh, sure, when this is the sociology class, no, this professor is who you need to take. They made it so easy for us. I remember I was having trouble in my philosophy class. Philosophy was the only class that I had to retake. And getting my bachelor's degree. It's the only class I just I just couldn't get it. I just do, didn't do well. But it, it, was, it, was, it was logic slash philosophy. So it wasn't what you think. It wasn't reading Plato and Socrates. It was using letters and symbols to represent different facets of an argument. Modus polens and modus tollens and triple bar and cube less than sign and greater than sign. It just, it was a whole nother language and I didn't do so well. So I remember one day I was just real sad one day because walking around on that campus at the time, being a black student was very lonely. It was very, you just didn't see a lot of black students. You saw white people all over the place, but you just didn't see many black students. So if we went to, I think it was Bolden Hall, the first floor of Bolden Hall is where the, the network of black academic advisors where they had couches in there. We could just come and chill and just be around a whole bunch of black folks, which just really recharged your soul. Cause I don't know if y'all white folks know this, no offense to y'all. Okay. But you drain us. It's so exhausting. Sometimes it just, it is. And sometimes you just want to be around black folks. Cause we just get our energy back. And I came in there one day and one of the women she saw the look on my face, and I think the look that I had on my face was a similar look that other black students have given her when they're ready to quit school. Because, you know, we start as freshmen, and maybe 60% of us come back for our sophomore year. At least back then, it was very, very low. So she had this look on my face. She came, oh, what's wrong, baby? I said, well, I ain't doing too good in my philosophy class. She said, oh, what the name of the class is? Okay, what the name of the professor is? And I told her. She went to a filing cabinet. I, may God strike me down right now if I'm lying. She goes to a filing cabinet. And she said, oh, did you take the unit two test today? I said, yeah, I took the unit two test today. She literally grabbed the test with all the answers on it and just and gave it to me. She's like, here, study that before you retake it. And I did. And I passed it. Now, did she go above and beyond? Yes. I'm not going to challenge her morals or her ethics in doing so, but it got me ultimately to pass that class, which I had to pass to get my degree. 
That is how you take these things very seriously. Sometimes you have to get granular and you just give a student who looks to be in despair the answers to the damn test. That's it. That's it renewed my spirit. And I passed the class the second time I took it. Marquette University spokesperson Monica McKay said improving educational access has been a historical priority at Marquette. In 1909, Marquette became the first co-ed Catholic university in the world. And in 1969, Marquette founded the first educational opportunity program in the nation, which has earned a reputation as one of the most distinguished, admired, and respected federal TRIO programs. As recently as 2020, Marquette committed to improving the experience of black students on campus and fostering a more inclusive and welcoming environment by adding 40 new scholarships in 2021 to attract and educate students from our surrounding community through our Urban Scholars Program and hiring a director of Black Student Initiatives to track the progress of campus initiatives aimed at increasing recruitment and retention of Black students and improving the campus climate. Further, Marquette remains committed to becoming a Hispanic-serving institution. International recruiting efforts have grown The number of Hispanic undergraduate students enrolled at Marquette from 9% in 2015 to 13% of the undergraduate student body in 2022. 15% of the current first-year undergrad classes, class rather, identifies as Hispanic or Latinx and Hispanic graduate slash professional student enrollment grew from 5.9% to 9% during the 2016 through 22 school years. Lastly, Preparing students to lead means ensuring their experiences, environments, is representative of the world beyond our campus. Right now, Marquette's student body is the most diverse in history. Students of color now make up over 28% of our total student population. More than 22% or one in five of our undergraduate student population is first generation. Since President Michael R. Lovell joined Marquette eight years ago, the university has doubled the percentage of black students in the incoming class from 3% to 6% and Hispanic students in the incoming class from 7 to 18%. During the past five years, the diversity of graduate and professional classes has increased from 16.2% to 22.4%, and we welcome international students from more than 80 countries to campus every year, enriching our culture with a variety of voices. Leave it up to academia academia rather, to take these disparities seriously. They'll take it seriously, and I wish we could see these kind of improvements in Milwaukee homeownership bachelor's degree numbers, which I think we will see, and workforce participation. The Truth with Sherwin Hughes will be right back. This is The Truth with Sherwin Hughes on 1017 The Truth, The Truth app, and 1017thetruth.com. The fact that Milwaukee ranks 130 out of 133 cities, that's a lot of cities. So in every category, so out of 130, we'd be last. Out of 120 cities, we'd be last. Out of 100 cities, we'd be last. 
of the top 80 cities, we'd be last. They had to add 133 for us to make 130. This is a citywide problem. We got to start looking at the disparities that exist when it comes to educational attainment and home ownership and workforce participation as just a black problem. Because what you do is you just leave black people in the black community to its own devices to fix the problem. And it has to be a collaborative effort. It's got to be all people, all of our different chambers of commerce. I like what the universities are doing, but academia is always going to take this stuff very seriously because they know the job that they have educating a nation, quite honestly, educating a world. And so, of course, they're going to apply all of the fact finding and the data machines that they have to see what they can do as a university to do their part. Because if we have got lower bachelor's degrees amongst African-Americans, then let's see what the universities and all the smart people that work in universities. Let's see what they came up with. And they came up with some real good stuff. We're going to see measurable differences. But here's the damn problem. We can get more black people with college degrees, but they ain't going to stay here. What would retain them here? What is here for them? Where is college educated, middle class, upper middle class, or even high income class African-Americans? Where do they go? Where do they live? They got to go to the damn suburbs. They got to live in some high rise downtown on the river. It's not very culturally diverse. Now, economically, they may feel comfortable because everybody makes roughly the same amount of money. But racially, they will feel isolated. And when you're successful and you make that kind of money and you can buy property wherever you want to buy it, don't you want to feel comfortable? Don't you want to feel like your race or ethnicity and your culture is represented? Because, hell, you got money now, right? But for too many African-Americans, having a little bit of money, having a little bit of change in your pocket means you got to be around the white folks all the time. And you get used to it, I reckon. But why wouldn't you move somewhere else where there's more black culture, more middle class, higher income black culture? Because higher income black culture in Milwaukee goes to Chicago. Higher income black culture in Milwaukee goes to Atlanta. Higher income black culture in Milwaukee goes to D.C. or sometimes it goes to New York City. Doesn't stay here. It doesn't stay here. So even if we can churn out more and this is good for the universities because they get to promote themselves as saying like, hey, we have increased the number of African-Americans who start here and who graduate here by double digit percentages, which is great. But if we can't translate those people with those college degrees into residents and homeowners and entrepreneurs and stakeholders, then it doesn't do the region any good. Let's read some text messages, shall we? Nina says. But also, the nicer you make the area, the higher rents will go up for these communities. That's true, Nina. That's very true. 414426 says, put an XFL arena team in that Northridge area. Ain't nobody going to watch that. You put a WNBA team over there. Does Milwaukee have a WNBA team? Shouldn't I know that? No, we don't have one, do we? Did we? We used to have, What happened to it? Nobody watched it. The Milwaukee, oh, the Doe's, okay, the Doe's, huh, that's, oh, a Doe is a deer, a female deer, gotcha. I'm not the only one that thought this. Do you know for the first probably 15 years of my life, I thought the Milwaukee Bucks, I thought buck meant money. I didn't even put two and two together, it was a deer. The Milwaukee Bucks, I thought it was, and I, they had the, the mascot, 
which didn't even the, the original Bucks mascot didn't really look that much like a deer. Carrie said the original Bucks. I'm, you know, I'm about to say that on air. Carrie, Carrie just said the original Bucks mascot looked like a crackhead on meth from West Dallas because it did like this pose. It was just like, and it had a it had a booty. It had. <laughs> Carrie said it, it reaches up like I need some money for crack. That's what the original Bucks mascot was. Because I didn't put two and two together that it was a deer. So when I heard Milwaukee Bucks, I was like, oh, a buck is a dollar. Like the, the Milwaukee money. I didn't know it was a deer until somebody said fear the deer. Well, no, that was kind of more recent. Until they changed the mascot. Probably when they changed the mascot, like the early 90s, late 80s, we got angry. They had an angry deer. Urgh. When we had uh, Glenn Robinson and Ray Allen and Sam Cassell. That right around then when we had that team. Did Vin Baker, he played for the Bucks, didn't he? I think so. I think. Why does Vin Baker sound familiar? But that when they changed the mascot to an angry looking deer, that's like, oh, oh, Milwaukee Bucks. It's a buck. I was not the only one that thought that that the Bucks was not a deer. He said Vin Baker was a coach, but he was a player too, though. Didn't he play for? All right, maybe that. Rodney says, I'm around Hamilton's old district and have seen zero signs for Bowen. How did he finish second over the other candidates? No signage. Well, he has name recognition amongst primary election voters, and I'm not sure if maybe. Maybe David Bowen represents, uh, when he was in the assembly, he may have represented a piece of the, in fact, I know he did. He represented a part of the first aldermanic district when he was a representative from the tenth assembly district. So that's all he needed. And so, yeah, he's candidates in races like this because they're not going to raise any money. Because here's the thing: people just say, "Oh, I didn't get nothing from the candidates," or "I don't see any yard signs." Because y'all don't give the candidates money so they can buy that stuff. And David Bowen is not independently wealthy because I know the people that he calls to get campaign money from. From. He ain't got no money. So if he ain't got no money, he ain't going to see no yard signs. But really all you have to do in an automatic race is just knock on a bunch of doors. Knocking on doors does a better job of engaging voters than putting up yard signs. What we always say in the professional politics, yard signs don't vote. You ever see those candidates that blanket the area with yard signs? They got yard signs in every single boulevard, every vacant lot. They got them all over the place, don't they? But then what? They lose the election. Yard signs don't vote. Felix says, hi, Sherwin. Wanted Mr. Bob to play the sax for my birthday today. I know it's not Monday. Have a blessed day. Well, Felix, happy birthday. And we don't want to ruin your birthday, Felix, with Bob playing the saxophone. So why don't I do this? I'm going to take a break. Come back, read some more text messages. We'll read Grant's messages and the caller and a few others that we've received. The disparities that exist in Milwaukee when it comes to black college degree attainment, black workforce participation, and black home ownership is not just a black people problem, it's a Milwaukee problem. The Truth with Sherwin Hughes will be right back. You are listening to The Truth with Sherwin Hughes on 1017 The Truth, The Truth app, and 1017thetruth.com.
Welcome back. I'd like to, I'm going to have a new approach in my political conversations. I don't really interview as many guests over here at 1017 The Truth. Just because I've talked to everybody so many times, y'all. Like, there's only a handful of people that are really doing stuff to move the needle. Only, And I talk to them all so many times. I want more national people because I'm just, I know what every local person is going to say because I talk to them a million and one times. But I'm going to have a new approach whenever I do interview somebody. Ain't no telling who I'm going to interview next. I'm just not really interested or like nobody's exciting. There used to be a time where the people that were embarking on political careers were exciting, charismatic people. And like those people are gone. No offense to anybody that's out there now. Some of y'all are good, but the new crop of folks are just, I don't know. I hate to say it, but they're just mediocre. Because I think all the great people, the charismatic people, and the creative people, the insightful people, they left. They went somewhere else. They said, I've had it with Milwaukee. I'm leaving. They left. So we just got the people that couldn't leave, I guess. <laughs> That's, oh, Gary said a ding for that. Yeah, I don't know. I just... But I want to ask people of whatever race and culture they are, whatever their status is or their job in the community, like how are they internalizing how poorly the African-American community is doing? Now, there's some black people that are doing really great things, but we got to stop looking at this as just being a black problem. Because it's the institutions that have kept black people away from the progress so all of us have got to be very laser focused on that. And the, the other thing is, it's not a zero sum game. If African-American people as a whole do better and own more homes and have more assets and have more equity and have more education and are participating in the workforce in a higher level, white people don't lose anything. White people are going to get richer. Like we're the last bastion of white wealth if we do better because we're just because they still own all the stuff that we buy so that's why it's easier to sell this as this is a community-wide problem because if we have less money then people who sell us stuff right now are going to make less if we have less equity and we have fewer assets then that's less money that black folks have to spend all right let's see what we got here grant says grant says a lot Um, this goes back to my conversation about DMV I'm sorry Professor Hughes did Shanae the DMV worker have a wave cap or a slave cap I am not familiar familiar with a slave cap please advise slave caps are bonnets and I saw a bonnet yesterday I remember a time when black women wouldn't leave the house without their hair done clearly times have changed but the DMV worker, she had her hair whipped. You know, the DMV lady, she's probably late 50s. Black woman in her late 50s. She's going to leave the house with her hair done. Grant says, previously I mentioned owning a home in Milwaukee for 17 years. I sold it for what I bought it for 17 years later. The property was one mile from the area you're speaking of. Wow. Grant goes on to say, Professor Hughes, help me understand why a prison on 79th and Clinton has to cost so much. 
There are plenty of construction companies that would be more than happy to build this facility for five to eight million dollars. For 80 million dollars, you can imagine the upgrades this prison will have over other prisons. I would expect each cell to have a lounge inside of it with a large television on the wall. A massage chair inside of each cell, I can imagine daily spa treatments for each prisoner. Instead of a gym, I can imagine they have personal trainers for each prisoner. The best chef's money can buy for the fine dining that is now expected every evening. Cook to order breakfast and the freshest fruits and vegetables for lunch. If that's the case, we all should go to prison. Yeah, I don't know why it's going to cost so much. It was originally slated for $45 million, and that is the amount that was approved. But now those costs have gone up to just under $80 million, and they're going to go up even further because I'd imagine as time goes on, costs are going to go up. And whoever the older person is that gets elected on April 4th to represent the people of the 9th District, they likely are going to want to be brought to the table and some of the final decisions that have to be made. And you got to keep this in mind. The older person is still going to have the ability to stall the project. And maybe they try some creative tricks to stall the project so they go back to the drawing board altogether. But they will have the ability to stall it. So we'll see what happens. It's between Larissa Taylor and Odell Ball. Those are the two finalists that made the cut that came out of the primary to go on to the general election for the 9th Aldermanic District, which takes place on April 4. 414350 says, if Milwaukee is the worst place for a black child, why? Are black babies being born daily here? And when will are they moving? Um... So, so yes, to answer your first question, because I can at least answer that one, but what's not a question? If Milwaukee is the worst place for a black child, why? Um, every measurable category. First of all, infant mortality. Black babies die here at a, a higher rate than white ones do. But the other thing is, so it's one of the worst places, if not the worst place for black children. Did you know it's in the top 10 for white children? Did y'all know that? Oh, we got to see that. Like that contrast should be disturbing. Wisconsin should be an okay place for all children. It shouldn't be in the top 10 for white. It shouldn't be in the absolute bottom for black. That should bother everybody. Instead of having one group in the top 10, that's great, right? White kids, top 10 best place for them to live and grow up and get educated and get jobs and own businesses is Wisconsin. But it it shouldn't be such a wide gap. When we talk about disparities, it's it's a great place for white people and white children. It's the worst place for black children. We should try to find some kind of equilibrium. So maybe we got to lose the top spot for white children. Maybe it comes down to like the 20th best place for white children, where then it can be the 20th best place for black children. It shouldn't be. It's a great place for white kids, worst place for black kids. Because isn't that to some extent going to breed more racism and resentment? Because the white kids that grow up with all the amenities that they need to be successful will look down on the black kids. It'll say, well, we grew up here and we're perfectly fine. We've got money and jobs and educations and 401ks and 403bs. What's wrong with you blackity blacks? We grew up in the same state, you see. And those are real conversations that people have. The truth with Sherwin Hughes will be back for hour three.